you may have a future in comedy. I don't know. Uh, I'm Bob Darrell, I'm an alcoholic. Any Jehovah Witnesses here? Any, no, but no Jehovah Witnesses, none? It's usually one or two. I had an old friend who was a Jehovah Witness. Many years ago, he married a atheist and his kids grew up to knock on people's doors for no apparent reason. So, you know, you guys have pretty much every year, it seems like you guys do this retreat and you, have, and you talk a lot about the book and a lot about the steps, which is beautiful. So I thought maybe to be useful, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about my experience with the steps, but I'm going to lean a little more into the traditions. Uh, you know, in, in the 1940s, Alcoholics Anonymous was uh, was in trouble, it was dying. There were conflicts, people were getting drunk, uh, there were war, like, the, the, to, even to this day, some to some degree, the Cleveland people, who, with Clarence Snyder and those guys, just really didn't like the New York people, Bill Wilson, and, the, you know, there's all that crap going on, and a lot of disunity, and, uh, Wilson uh, had read an art read an article that he about some an organization he didn't know about called the Washingtonians and how the Washingtonians in just a few years went from six guys to some of the estimates were in the hundreds of thousands without telephones without you know the, with everything we we got and, and then they just died they just died and um, they don't, they don't exist. Uh, and so uh, he, Wilson could be very inspired. He was, everyone I've ever, I'd never, he, the first year I went to Alcoholics Anonymous was the year he died. And I never got a chance to meet him. I, but everybody I knew, and I've known a lot of people that knew him, they all said the same thing, that he was a visionary. That he had an ability to, to see things that other people can't see. And there was a guy who did a, an article about uh, Einstein, and he said in that article there were, that every generation or so somebody comes into the planet that has an ability to make leaps over things and see things that logic won't tell you about. And I think that's true for Wilson. Uh, how, how, does a, how does a guy three years sober write chapter five, right? How does, how does a self-centered guy see that self-centeredness is the root of the problem. How does that happen? Uh, does any of you, and when you were three years sober without a sponsor, without the book, just all of a sudden go, you know, selfishness, selfishness and self-centeredness, I think really is the root of my troubles. And you don't, you don't see that self hides from self. And so uh, Wilson was inspired and he wrote this and in what was now known as the long form of the 12 traditions. It was, at that time, it was the only form. It was the, the tenets to ensure AA's future. And uh, he went around Alcoholics Anonymous for a while trying to get groups to adopt these traditions. You know, he, he couldn't even get groups to read them. He couldn't even get people to read them. And I get it. My old home group, we used to read the 
long form of the traditions once a month. And oh my God, they're long. They're really long. I mean, you and new people who have a short of the attention span of a gnat would sit there and just like in pain, just like, oh, make it stop. You know, just like, oh, because it goes on and on and on. And uh, Wilson couldn't get any traction. And there was a guy in Chicago, Earl Treat, who he's the guy that that uh, it was that came to Akron and, and uh, Dr. Bob took him through the steps in one weekend, which wasn't the normal course of events, uh, even though there's people that try to take his example and make it the normal. But the, Earl had to get back to Chicago. So Earl uh, is watching this conflict and Bob's frustration because uh, we need to have something here to ensure that we're not going to die. And uh, so Earl Treat wrote the short form of the traditions, and they were more easily adopted. And in the 50s, in 1950, they were ratified, and they were published in the grapevine. Um, and they become what is known as our 12 traditions. But I, I uh, started looking at the long form. Bill Wilson, I'm a... I'm a guy who really has a tremendous amount of respect for Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson did something that was never done before. You know, I, I in the in the history of the planet, outside of a cup, outside of five or six years in the 1800s for the Washingtonians, there's never been an effective treatment for alcoholism. And Alcoholics Anonymous has changed the lives of the estimates that since its beginning. It's probably over four million people. There's never been anything like that. I have a book at home called The Slaying of the Dragon. And it's it's an account of treatments for alcoholism that have failed. And they've all failed prior to Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, they used to do some crazy stuff to people like us. Drill holes in our skulls to let the demons out. Burn us at the stake because... You've sworn five times tearfully you'd never do that again, and you're doing it again. You must be possessed. Um, and, and if you ever go to Bermuda in the square, there's a, they have a thing for men, drunken men, and they have a thing for drunken women. The drunken women, it's called a dunking chair. They strap you in this chair. It's on a long lever, and it, it goes down, and it pushes you under the ocean, holds you there, and then brings you up. And they do that to keep thinking that's going to terrify, it's going to freak you out to the point you'll never drink again. Well, you know what that's like. That doesn't work. They put guys in a stock thing where your head would be in there and they'd lock it in, your arms are in there. And then they didn't have indoor plumbing. So people had what they called pea pots next to their bed. And people would come out in the morning and throw trash on you and empty uh, your, their pea pots in your face thinking that that surely that they're never going to drink again after that and i i don't know i don't think that worked i matter of fact i suspect there might have been some pretty weird alcoholics here that came to like that i don't know i i, I, I don't know uh, but, uh i was over i was over in russia uh been over there a couple times I, it doesn't look like I'm going to go again because uh, of the political environment's changed. But there's a lot of drunks over there. They, they've had one of the worst problems with alcoholism, maybe of any country in the world. Uh, 
it's the kind of place that on the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg, it's not unusual to see somebody chugging a liter of vodka at 7 a.m. or seeing somebody passed out on the sidewalk in the morning. And the, the, the Soviet Union uh, had done, spent millions and millions of rubles trying to figure out a way to curtail this problem that was affecting the culture, infecting the productivity. Um, and one of the, when I, one time when I was over there, I was doing a workshop with through, I had two Russian translators. Uh, one was a member of AA and another, the other one was a member of Al-Anon. And uh, because nobody speaks English, rare, it's rare to have anybody over there that learns English. Now a little bit more today, because as Russia back in the, the last decade started entering into the world economy somewhat, people were starting to learn English. But for the most part, this was many years ago, there was nobody there that spoke English. And so we had these translators. And during one of the breaks, a guy comes up to me and he, he's, he's excited talking in Russian. And well, I don't understand Russian. He doesn't understand English. So we had to grab one of the translators and we grabbed the Al-Anon. She was handy. And we grabbed this woman Al-Anon translator and she's translating what he's saying. And what he's saying is that he was a terrible, terrible drunk. Figured he's here. He must be. He had tried everything to not drink. Uh, and it never, nothing worked. And it was so bad that the, the, the Soviets had, their, had created a chip that their doctors had created and they would surgically implant this chip into the muscle tissue in the middle of your back. And if you drank, it detected the alcohol in your bloodstream and released a toxin into your bloodstream that I don't know what it was, but it, it, from the description, it sounded like it was some kind of super an abuse. It wasn't designed to kill you. I mean, if you were in bad shape anyway, it could have pushed you over the edge, but it was designed to make you wish you were dead for a while. You know, like just miserable, miserable stuff. And it was a, a fairly effective deterrent from drinking uh, as an abuse was used in this country. But I, I know alcoholics in AA that drank on an abuse. I know many of them that have done that. Um, so, but this guy, as he's telling me the story about this chip, he pulls his shirt tail up, turns around, and he's got this ugly scar in the middle of his back. And through the Al-Anon translator, he's telling us that after a little over a year of no relief, after a little over a year of, you know what we go through, restless, irritable, discontent, low-level depression, loneliness, after over a year, he begged his best friend to take a kitchen knife and cut the chip out of him so he could go get drunk. Now, the Al-Anon translator was horrified by that story. I, on the other hand, was horrified that he waited a year. <laughs> right? Because I, because of, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous because of Wilson's original intention for membership. In the third tradition of the long form, it's so much different than the third tradition in the short form. In the short form, we all know it. It's read at most meetings. Uh, the only requirement for membership is a desire, not to, a desire to stop drinking. I, 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 that's not an issue in my life. I don't even, you know, if you, if you ask me at any time in my sobriety over the last 44 and a half years, 
uh, do you have a desire not to drink? I'd probably go, well, yeah, of course, you know, but it's not an issue with me. But Wilson said in the original, he said that membership should include all who suffer from alcoholism. I'm an everyday member of Alcoholics Anonymous because of that. Because when I stop drinking, I begin to suffer from alcoholism. I mean, why the hell do you think a guy like me would relapse for over a half dozen years, swear to himself with complete understanding that this is the worst thing I could ever do? What kind of insanity and suffering would have to be on me to push me back to drinking again when I know that it's the worst thing I could ever do? When I'm on paper and one one missed PO appointment, one bad UA, and I'm going to prison for two years. What would have to happen to a guy? How much suffering would I would it take for me to go and think that's a good idea because I need the medicine? Just like how much suffering did it take that Russian guy to beg his friend to cut that chip out of his back? So I'm an everyday member of Alcoholics Anonymous because of the membership requirement originally put down by Wilson. And what is it? And I think that's the question. I, and I've had to look at this uh, honestly as I possibly can over the years of what is suffering from alcoholism? Um, and I, I sponsor a, a lot of guys and I talk to them about it. And I hear, it's funny how you will introduce me to me. As you start to tell me about your stuff, there are times when that happens and I'm listening to you and I'll, and I'll sit there and, and I'll go, Oh my God, that's me. I never heard it put that way, but that's me. You introduced me to me through your sharing about you in a way that some of the greatest psychiatrists and psychologists on the planet couldn't do. Because an alcoholic <clears throat> properly armed with information about himself can reach another alcoholic where, where no one else can. And you did, you reached me. You introduced me to me, um, you introduced me to a way of life that counteracts me pretty much. Um, and so one of the things that happened to me when I got sober, I'm suffering from alcoholism. So the suffering drove me to get a sponsor because I was out of options. I mean, I just, I don't know what else to do. I need help. It just, just for a guy like me to admit he need to himself, the desperation and how much I need help is a big deal because I'm self-reliant. I'm that guy that doesn't want to look, I, I need help, but I got to look like I don't. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a hard thing to do when you have that ego, right? I, I remember one time in, in uh, I was probably eighth grade, I think, junior high school. And there was a guy named, I think his name was Scott maybe, or, and he was, he was a senior. And him and I got in a little discussion in the argument, and he wants me to uh, admit that I'm wrong, and I'm not going to do that. And this guy, he beat me half to death, and I wouldn't give up. I would rather take the, this horrible beating than look weak. That's crazy. That is insane. 
it, it would take a person with an extreme ego to be like that, that, that you would put yourself at risk. The guys eventually stopped hitting me. He, said, he just, he kept saying to me things like, don't get up. And I just, fuck it up. <laughs> just slammed me a couple more times. He was about 40 pounds heavier than I wasn't, about six inches taller. I mean, I didn't have a chance. Just like I didn't have a chance with alcohol and alcoholism. And so I get, uh, I get this sponsor because I'm broken. I get this sponsor because I'm crushed. I get this sponsor because basically I'm out of options. I, I know, I didn't know much, but I knew one thing that with everything in me, I can't stay away from the first drink. I can for a little while, but eventually my emotions, the depression, the anxiety, the loneliness, the not fitting, all that stuff just eventually eats my lunch and I just can't, I can't stay sober. So I get this sponsor and I make a deal with him. I'll do whatever he wants me to do. And one of the first things he asked me to do was to uh, pray. And I, you know, sometimes when people in AA, now I have committed to do whatever he asked me to do, but I still reserve the right to have discussions with him to try to show him the error of the direction he's given me, you know, right? So he, he wants me to pray. And I said to him, I said, I can't pray. He said, why not? Well, I said, well, I don't believe in God. He said, I didn't ask you to believe in God. I asked you to pray. So I thought, I said, well, listen, if I pray and I don't believe in God, I'd be a hypocrite. He said, oh, you've been a hypocrite all your life. Just do it. <laughs> and I was, it was true. I, <clears throat> I'm the guy that would promise you anything and then do what I want to do. Because that's what selfish, self-centered people do. We were driven by our emotions and our needs. I had no integrity because I, I was a hypocrite. And uh, so I started praying. And it's funny that there's a line in uh, We Agnostics. It's very touching to me. And it says that God does not make hard terms with those who seek him. I used to MF God. I don't even believe in him, but I cuss him out anyway. You know, just because I've had my life so crappy. I, I would uh, I would fight with religious people. I'd, I'd like to you know one of my one of my best days drinking was towards the end. I was at the same at this guy's apartment, and I had a half gallon of vodka that was about half done. And uh, two uh, watchtower people came to the door. Now, this is like being invited to a great sport sporting event, right? And I brought I brought him in. I just I just just tried to frustrate them and make the, I just, oh, because I don't, I, I don't like religious people. I'm an anti-religionist. I'm, I'm a, a wannabe atheist. I'm not really an atheist. I've, if you've ever known any atheist, to be a good atheist, you got to be very religious about your atheism to be a good atheist. <laughs> what I am truly is a guy who's afraid of God. I'm a guy who deep, I couldn't even admit this to myself, but the truth is deep down inside of me, if there is a God, I'm just not good enough for him. I'm too stained. I, I'm too, I'm too wrong. I've hurt too many people. I've done too, I've gone too far. 
And, and by nature, I'm the kind of guy that if I think you don't like me, I'm going to not like you first. I've, I've done that all my life. Do you ever just go on, be on a job somewhere? Just some guy's having a, he might be having a bad day, but you don't think so. You think he doesn't like you. And you start building a case against him, right? The next thing you know, you're, you're having an argument and he, the guy doesn't know what this is, where this is coming from. But I'm that guy. So I did that with God. Because of my internal feelings of unworthiness, I put it on him. Just as I would put it on you. If I suspect you don't like me, I'm, somehow, or even if I did something to hurt you, I'm going to make it your fault. I'm going to make it your fault. So I'm that way with God, and I'm, I'm, I'm really, truly, I'm just afraid. And my sponsor had me praying, which I, it felt weird to me. But from the moment I started doing that, as I started taking actions that are contrary to what Bob wants and contrary to how Bob feels, from the moment I started taking those actions, a ser an endless series of coincidences started happening in my life. Weird stuff. Weird stuff. And a lot of it happened around Alcoholics Anonymous or in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. I, I had this happen to me dozens of times. You know, because in early sobriety, I, I go, I'm on that emotional roller coaster where I, get, I can get crazy for no reason. I don't even know why I'm crazy. I get depressed. Nobody's even said nothing to me, and I just start sinking into the abyss. I get weird easily, and I'm, I'd be weird. And I go to an AA meeting. I don't know what the hell's going on. I don't know what, I, not only don't I know what the answer is, I don't even know what the problem is. And there'd be a stranger in the meeting who starts sharing and he's nailing me because he's talking about what I'm going through exactly and how he got out of it. That didn't happen to me once or twice. It happened to me dozens of times. Until even the skeptic, even the atheist-inclined person that I was started to come to believe because of an actual experience. And I'll tell you, it, I'm incapable of believing something because it says it in a book or because the minister said it. I mean, I, I might placate you and act like I believe, but the truth is I don't. I'm a skeptic. I'm a cynic. And I'm so full of self-centered fear. I'm incapable of just believing just for the sake of it. But I started to have an experience that was undeniable. And I think that's perfect because it becomes my experience and it becomes part of my reality. Uh, your reality and your belief doesn't touch my reality. Um, and, you know, it doesn't matter how intellectually, you know, I've, I've known, uh, I've sponsored clergy over the years that some of them very learned people when it comes to theology and, and religion, uh, heads full of information about God, more than I will ever have. And yet uh, some of those guys drank themselves to death. Because Father Martin said it best, he said, when intellect and emotion are in conflict with, with each other, the emotion always wins because it's persistent. 
when uh, it's it's like when I found out my my wife was sleeping with my one of my best friends who I sponsored, and I lost my wife and daughter in one fell swoop to him. He, they moved in together. Uh, where the hell's God now? Right? And people in AA, would, I mean, I, I almost punched a guy because he came up to me. I was in the middle of that crap. Came up to me and said, well, you believe in God? And I said, yeah, I do. He said that it shouldn't be a problem. Oh, man, I wanted to hit him. <laughs> it's not what you believe. It's what you do. What saved me is I did a lot of 12-step work. I, went, I started going from two H&I meetings a week up to five and six. I started throwing myself, just like it says in the book, throw yourself the harder into helping others. Quiet said imperious urge. And I did that. And it saved me. The actions of Alcoholics Anonymous saved me. That AA is often uh, referred to as a faith-based program. I don't think that's true. I, I understand how it's observed like that. But I think in truth, in experience, it's really an action-based program. There's something, this, okay, I've come, I'm taking these crazy actions. God's talking to me in, in the meetings through people. And it's happening. And I'm coming to believe. But there's a big difference between belief in God and trust in God. A world of difference. And the one is, the one is action. And the other one is thought. And I need the action. And trust, I didn't understand that the trust isn't isn't a feeling. I thought I always think when you're self-centered and you're focused on how you feel obsessively over the years, everything becomes a feeling, a gratitude. You need to have gratitude. Well, as soon as I feel that way, you know, it's what they're telling me, get up off your lazy, selfish ass and go down to the detox. Get on the 12-step list. To demonstrate gratitude. And the same is true with trust. Um, what, what do you do, Bob, when, when you're scared? What do you do when she, uh, when she said she might be pregnant? And you can't even support yourself. What do you do... When you're afraid that this stuff from your past is going to catch up with you and you might go to prison. What do you do when you've just lost another job and it's the ninth, it's the eighth job you've lost in just the first couple years of your sobriety? What do you do when you're terrified? What do you do when, when you're told that your dad's dying and you haven't completely made all your amends? What do you do when your girlfriend goes off with another guy because he had more going on than you do? He made more money. He had a better place. He had a nicer car. And you can't really fault her. You fault yourself. Because you, know you know the truth. You know the truth you always knew. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. What do you do then? And it's what you do if you're like me is you do what your sponsor tells you. You show up. You throw yourself into helping others. If there's amends to make, you make them. If there's things to... And, and uh, it's just a whole process of, as, as Chamberlain would say, and of getting of getting rid of the things that are between me and you and me and God. So, And I started to realize the the... 
the validity of our second tradition and what it's really saying here. That it's not just in the group conscience when you're trying to make a decision for your home group, you know, that God will express himself through that group conscience, and he does. The ultimate authority shows up. But I think that when two or more of us come together for the purpose of recovery, there's something in the midst there that's greater than the sum of the parts. In a strong meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous where the people there for the most part are there to try to help drunks and it's not a narcissistic A meeting and there's some narcissistic A meetings you know the ones that start out does anybody have a problem and you know some poor guy will dump his problem on the table and then everybody shares at him because you know, all, they all become marriage counselors and they share at him for the rest of the hour and the guy can't even sit through the meeting he's just being overwhelmed with advice he bolts out of the meeting halfway through the meeting which doesn't stop us because i didn't get to share my advice and so i started to see that uh, in a strong meeting and you can tell you can feel if, if you're awake at all you can feel that spirit in a good a meeting you can feel it and the, the difference, how do you know a meeting has a good spirit versus one that doesn't? It's what happens to me is a result of that meeting. I've, I've been to meetings, honest to God, I, and it's not the fault of the meeting. It's, it, maybe it's me. But I've been to meetings where when the meeting's over, I think to myself, my God, I need a meeting. Just, you know, like it, I, I feel almost worse because I, and part of the problem is me in conflict with the people in the room. And part of the meeting is I've come there to try to reconnect with something that I maybe I've drifted from. And all I'm doing reconnecting with is Bob, is me. So God expresses himself in Alcoholics Anonymous. He shows up here. And so when I started to wake up to that, I started having a, a respect <clears throat> and honoring through my actions, Alcoholics Anonymous. It, it, you, you come to the groups I go to, my home group, you, I don't touch my phone. Why don't I touch my phone? Well, because I'm sober a long time and if, I, if I'm texting or on my phone during a meeting, I might as well just hold up a sign to the new people. I think it's all right for everyone to do this. Do I want that kind of Alcoholics Anonymous? But selfishness precludes that. Selfishness just makes it, what I'm doing is fine. It, it's funny, I'm the kind of guy that likes the law for other people. I think the 50, I remember when they did the 55 mile an hour speed limit, I thought, man, that's a good idea. I bet you there's less traffic accidents. I bet you it's better. It's probably better for the economy, less fuel burns. Good, it's good all, all the way around but I'm in a hurry. <laughs> Handicap parking, same thing, same thing. You know, it's good, it need that, we need that. Uh, traditions, traditions are good for you. I, uh, when I was in, I spent nine years in, this is pathetic, I spent nine years in general service and I didn't even know it. I weaponized the 12 traditions. I'd weaponized the steps too. 
uh, and I, my ego has, there's no end to its hypocrisy. There's no end to how it can selfishly use things. I re remember, oh, God, it's, you know, I was one of the first guys, I was the first guy in, the, in Vegas, and one of the earlier guys in the, in the country in the early 80s start doing big book weekends and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And I, how it went to my ego, you know? How I started thinking myself as, of myself as the, as the guy. I'm the guy. And I remember going to a meeting at one of the clubs, and there was a guy chairing the meeting who I knew he was actually sober a little longer than I was. And he was a pretty good AA member. And the subject is step four. And I'm sitting there listening. And they, they all got it wrong. Everybody in the room got it wrong. And, and I'm the only one that knows. And, but I, it's okay. I'm listening patiently, just smiling patiently, listening to the nonsense. But I know the guy chairing the meeting is going to call on me at the end so I can clean this crap up. Right? And he didn't call on me at the end. Now I'm mad. It's hard, it's hard to be mad and look humble at the same time. It's really, it's a hat trick. I'm telling you, it's very difficult. But I'm mad and I, I, he, he comes, I say to him at the end of the meeting, he asked me, what'd you think of the meeting? That was a crappy meeting. He said, no, I thought it was a good meeting. It was terrible. Nobody you called on even, I don't even think they ever did a fourth step. He said, no, some of those guys, they've done four steps. I said, you don't even know. I don't think you've done a four step. <laughs> he said, what do you mean? I've done, a, I've done a couple of them. I said, oh, yeah? So what's it say on the bottom of page 66 and the top of 67, huh? And he looks at me like, I didn't come here to be tested. And what is that except ego? I've weaponized the spiritual principles that are designed to create unity, that are designed to create usefulness, that are designed to reduce Bob's ego, and I've taken them and I've used them to bolster my ego into this feeling of a pathetic, smug superiority. And so you know what happens, guys like me, we, <clears throat> we go back through the steps. And the, the fourth step, especially in conjunction with six, seven, eight, and nine, <clears throat> the fourth step is designed to get rid of the things in me that are causing these problems. And one of the things that the big game changer for me in the fourth step was, and I learned this by helping a guy do it. After you, there's, in the resentment section, there's, they ask you to do six things. Now, I, I know I once traveled with Joe and Charlie for a couple of years. They only, they would only talk about a couple of them. They wouldn't, they sloughed over what to me has become experientially the greatest part of the fourth step. So you list your judgments. They call it resentments, but you know what it is. It's the people you have built cases on. It's your opinions. You're putting it all out there because in order to have ego reduction, you have to bring the ego out into the light of day. And the, one of the best ways to do that is to, is to make a list of all its judgments, how it's played God with people, how it's uh, 
created that separation. So I have all the people that I've judged harshly, the, the people that, that I've had cases built against. The second column, why? And it's little bullet points, which hardly seems enough if you're like me. I think these should be malt pages of explanation so that when you read it to your sponsor, he, go, he goes, they did that? I'm going to get the boys together and we'll go over there. You know, I, I want you to hate who I hate the way I hate who I hate, right? Um, <clears throat> so it's just bullet points, just little bullet, just little, and it's, it, it makes you, when you do the bullet points, there's a little, there's sometimes there's times when you just, you put it on paper and you're like, that's pathetic. That's, I hate you and wished you were dead because you had a party and didn't invite me. <laughs> then what was what aspects of self were hurt, threatened, injured, interfered with, or affected? My pocketbook, my pride, my sex, my personal relationships, my ambitions, me getting my way. And then a lot of people at that point go right to the last column, try to look for their part. Well, first of all, that's fine if you want to look at it. I said that for years. I said we look for our part. But I, I've caught myself in a situation with a guy I sponsored, and I, was, and I told him, okay, we're going to look for our part. In the middle of page 67 is a paragraph and uh, where we, you know, we ask ourselves those questions. Where was I selfish, et cetera? And he found his part. But in looking for his part in that mindset, unconsciously he reserved the right to feel that they had a part. So when he wanted to make amends to them, he got pissed. Because after he humbled himself so much at admitting where he was wrong, they didn't respond. And the book starts out that last paragraph with something that you can't do unless you do the thing in between. It says, Dis we're putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done. We resolutely look for our own mistakes. So this is, you got to forget about what your parents did. What kind of a son were you? You got to forget what she did. What kind of a boyfriend or a husband were you? And, and it goes on to say in the same paragraph, disregard the other person entirely. And how do you do that if, if you've had, if you're one of those guys like I am, don't even know I'm like this, where I just, I will stare at what you did to the point where I blow it up to the point where it keeps what I did in the shadows. Because I'll make what you did in my mind worse. I, I am an expert at hiding selfish, self-seeking, vengeful, uh, all kinds of sick behavior in the shadow of what I can find wrong with you. Did it in relationships. I did it in jobs. I, I had a boss one time, um, he used to take merchandise home. Now the owner didn't know he did it and he wasn't supposed to do it, but it gave me license to steal. You know what I mean? It was like I could justify. And, and I had a great mentor uh, in early sobriety say to me, he said, listen, kid, I want you to know if you're explaining something, if you're justifying something, rationalizing something, or defending something, kid, you got to know you're wrong because you never have to negotiate what's right. You just don't. 
And the minute this, this negotiating voice comes on in my head, you can bet your ass that I'm out of line and I have to justify it because it's self-serving. And so uh, the, the book says, what do you do? It, it says, okay, you can't wish these, we, we must look at them from an entirely different angle, these judgments in the resentment list. And then it, it says something very interesting. It says, uh, we must be free of these or it's going to kill us. And then it says, and now that you know that, you don't have what it takes to do it. You can't wish these resentments away any more than alcohol. And so what do you do? And it says the next, next couple words, this was our course. And in the next two lines, it tells me something that will change my life. If I can do it. Now, doing it is not that easy. And it's, it's a two-part realization. <clears throat> if, you, if you go back to when it first starts to talk about step one in chapter three, it it's, talks about a place that this all this stuff must happen. Chuck, Chuck Chamberlain used to say it all the time. This is an inside job. This is not something that is placated or understood academically in the mind. It's something that is taken into the heart. And it says... Um, we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. And so it's this is back to that innermost self. When it says realize, that's not can you kind of see. It's like in here. Do you get it? Do you connect the dots? Do you get it? And they're asking me to, a two-part realization. The first part's easy. I think everybody in this room could do the first part. Matter of fact, might even like doing it. It says we had to realize that the person who harmed us was perhaps spiritually sick. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> and they're, and they're stupid too. You know, where's Dr. Kavorki? And now that we need him, let's put them out of their misery. They're sick. Now the ego loves anything that's me here and you there loves it. I'm on board for all that. If that's all it said, I wouldn't have gotten any better. I would have just reinforced all my judgments. Because the need, the alcoholic ego's need to be right is unbelievable. We really are what Wilson says, an extreme example of what self wants and wants to be right. Extreme. I, I bet you there's people in this room that, uh, that have destroyed their life to be right. Destroyed marriages and, and relationships because their need to be right was more important than the relationship. Jobs, because the need to be right. And so uh, the second part of the realization, it says, even though I don't like their symptoms, and I don't, and what are the symptoms? The second column, the bullet points, the causes. You mean to tell me, you mean to apply that this person wouldn't have done what I put them on the list for if they hadn't have been spiritually sick? Well, let's turn it around. Look at all the things that were on your eight-step list. Look at all the people you hurt. Did you mean to? Maybe not. Did you? Yeah. And why did you do it? Because my, I was sick in here. I was full of self-centered fear, frustration. Maybe I'd recently been hurt because hurt people will hurt people. 
but it's because I'm spiritually sick. So even though I don't like their symptoms and the way these symptoms disturb me, column number three, my pride, my pocketbook, my ambitions, can I, can I get it? The, the next thing it says is, is the game changer. It says, um, had to realize that the people, these people were like me, spiritually sick. So this isn't, this is not what the ego first envisions, that you're going to see how sick they are and you're going to feel superior. It's one sick guy who's made a lot of mistakes, who's hurt a lot of people, looking right across the table at another guy that's made the same mistakes and been driven by the same fears and hurt. This is, is the re restoration of community and unity. This is the ego reduction in depth that you go through every judgment of your life and you get to see how wrong you were. And that's what coming out. I did uh, earlier. I did three. I've done three, four steps before my first good one. And the earlier ones, if you ask me, what, what's, so what's the nature of your wrongs, Bob? I'd say, well, I stabbed the guy and I ripped off that guy. I had, I had sex with a transvestite. And, you know, I, all the things that I felt ashamed of and guilty about, uh, what I did to my mother and father. Ask me after I did the one in the book. And I would have told you how wrong I was about my mother and father, how I pathetically tried to blink because they wouldn't help me anymore. And I made their, my life their fault about how the girls that I broke up or ruined relationships with, and they dumped me, how I made it their fault. And they're just a bitch. And they just did that. I started to rise out of the ashes of my life was the true picture that I'm the guy. I'm the guy that did all that stuff. Did I mean to do it? No. Did I do it? Yeah. I'm the guy. And I started, when I started to see these things from an entirely different angle, when I stopped being the prosecuting attorney and started looking at it, these situations through the other people's eyes, it was a tremendous awakening to me how wrong I'd been about everything. How wrong I was about my mother and father, my sister, the bosses, the girlfriends, the cops. I mean, I, I had a big case, big resentment towards these cops that beat the crap out of me. When I put myself in their shoes, they were actually pretty gentle with me. Because if it would have been me, oh, I'd have been dead. And and I, my mother and father, not I had built this case about how they, they didn't love me. They just... Ah, ah. The truth is when I put myself in their shoes, what I didn't understand is why they loved me and continued to help me all those years after disappointment, after disappointment. Because if, if I was them, I'll tell you, I'm more selfish. I wouldn't have put up with, with what they put up with. The girls that, that had dumped me, if, if I put myself in their place, I wouldn't have survived. I couldn't have stayed in a relation. I'm too selfish. I couldn't have done what they did. And so a world that had been hostile and difficult, all of a sudden the veil is lifting and I'm starting to see the truth that actually the, the people in the world have been more tolerant and more forgiving and more accepting of me than I ever would have been with them if the tables were turned. How wrong can you get? 
And every time I dismantled with this was our course, <clears throat> one of these judgments, it's like it's like a ratcheting down of the ego. It's wrong about my mother, wrong about my father, wrong about my sister, wrong about my ex, wrong about the ex before that, wrong about the ex before that, wrong about the it's it's like you're getting smaller. And and my I have a friend from Canada who says that spiritual growth is not addition, it's subtraction. We grow towards God and towards others by self-reduction. Because the ego is not only edges God out, it edges people out. And so I got started to get this ego reduction. Um, but you know what happens. It happens to all of us. doesn't ma matter how surrendered you are. The ego grows back like a bad tumor. I, do you ever have? Do you ever have this experience? I, I, I remember this on a couple occasions, but like one in particular. I just spent several hours with a guy listening to a fifth step. Very connected, very just, very grateful that God is in his life and God's in my life. I saw myself in this guy. I felt community. I thought, oh my God, we're so much alike. This is amazing. I felt very spiritual, and I went to a meeting that night. And I'm not even in the meeting 10 minutes. And I don't even know what to call it. So I call it the noticer. The noticer came on. You know that thing that the, you look around the meeting and you notice? You notice what's wrong with people? I noticed some girl that just had a boob job got up and started walking around the room showing off her tits, you know? I, I, noticed, I noticed the people who t drank four cups of coffee and didn't put money in the basket. I noticed the people that were just talking and you know it's phony. My God, that can't be real. You can hear the angel wings flapping in the background when they share, you know? And what's happening, a guy like me who was connected and smaller became bigger and more disconnected. And I didn't even know that that just happens. It's, and I guess it is part and parcel of the chronic nature of this spiritual malady. You know, the illusion, the book, the book has a great illusion in chapter three. It says that, that the delusion that we are like other people or that we presently maybe like if you did a really good job with the steps, you'll be over all this crap. You know, and I'll be able to walk hand in hand with Bill and Bob out into the sunshine of the spirit, you know, some, but it doesn't happen that way because of the chronic nature of this disease. And Wilson is very brilliant in, in our traditions and in, in a couple traditions, he talks about what, what's going to mess me up here? Money, property, prestige. And I think if he wrote this today, he'd put sex in there. The things that, that puff me up and pump me up and give me a false sense of security when my ultimate reliance is supposed to be in God. And, and, and inadvertently, the God that shines through you, because God shines through people in AA. I've gotten help. I, I t I've had things happen in AA where uh, that had to have been God because this guy is not that bright. 
where they say, you know, they just, they'll say something, they'll say, it's like, and I've had it, I've had it happen to me where I'm working with a new guy or some guy I sponsor and he is in deep trouble. And I, I really truly have the desire to help him. I don't, I don't want him to suffer. But the, the truth is I got nothing. I don't know what to say to him. And I'm frustrated. And then something funny happens. It's almost, the book refers to it as the great reality deep down within us. It's almost like a portal opens up and I'll hear myself say words I've never said before and I don't know where they come from, but they're perfect. And it's exactly what he needed to hear. And I think that's the way God shines through some of us sometimes. I, I, I was doing that with a guy one time. And what I was saying to him was so amazing. I thought, my God, I'd never heard that before. I thought, I should write this down. I mean, you know, <laughs> and that's when we asked God in the 11th, in the prayer of St. Francis to make me a channel. I think that sometimes happens, sometimes. Um, but the, our 11th step warns us, uh, don't presume to be inspired at all times. If you do, you'll pay for that presumption with all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. I have to be constantly on guard to the ego and it's clamoring to me. And I, I am very capable of imagining crap as God's will when it's really mine. Instead of trying to align my will with God's, I start to fantasize that God's come to his senses and he sees it my way. I, I remember the first, first time I was a year, year and a half, maybe two years sober, I was in early sobriety and there was a girl Every good AA story starts out with, and there was a girl. And there was this girl. She was, almost, she was almost 90 days sober. She'd been a prostitute. She was hot. I mean, she was cute. And she liked me, which is big on my list. Because um, I, I felt so unworthy. I couldn't believe a cute girl like this would want to be with a guy like me. And it was the only time... My sponsor, my first sponsor was never the arbiter of my sex conduct. He just, he wanted me to learn the lessons. He wanted me to stay. He, he was more like, oh yeah, you're going to do that? Well, okay, I want you to go to a lot of meetings. I want you to work with a lot of new, he would just try to offset my crazy with spiritual actions, right? So, but it was the only time he ever became the arbiter of my sex conduct. And he said to me, he said, you need to stay away from her. She's really sick. And I looked at him. I said, Dick, we're, this is AA. We're all sick here. <laughs> see, you already see the end coming, don't you? Yeah, I know. And then I said, she, I think she's my soulmate. And he, he rolls his eyes like, what? And I said, no, no, no. Listen, listen. You know that my thing my choice was i drank a ton of richard's wild irish rose she drank richard's wild irish rose and he couldn't see the kismet <laughs> right? and what i'm trying to align god's will with mine and i'm imagining that it's god when i said to him i think she's my soulmate i think i meant that when i said it but it's not coming from my spirit, it's coming from my ego. It's coming because Bob wants what Bob wants when Bob wants what Bob wants. And it's a driving force. And so uh, 
I, 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 I'm one of those kind of guys. I always have had a sponsor. And, and more importantly, you can have a sponsor and not get much good out of it. Because the burden of the lesson is on the student. It's, you can have a terrible sponsor, but if you're sponsorable, God will work through the idiot and give you everything you need. You could have the most spiritual giant in Alcoholics Anonymous, and if you're not sponsorable, not much good will come from that because the, the, the transformation is in the surrender. It's in the surrender. And what are we surrendering? Well, the first thing and the third step, our will. I think that's paramount. I think if I could truly and consistently abandon and surrender my will to God, I think I could mess with my life because I wouldn't have an opinion about it. I wouldn't be driven. It's, it's my will. It's what I want. And that, that is a difficult thing because I want. And I, I remember I was sober many years. And I was looking back at my life and I was trying to find, was there ever a time in my sobriety, I had moments, I guess, when I was just get that right buzz in my sobriety, was there ever a time where I, everything was perfect? Was there ever a time that if I sat and thought about it, I didn't want for anything? Was there ever a time that I felt complete? You know, in the, in the Bible, <clears throat> in Genesis, when it talks about uh, God creating the heavens and the earth and the animals, etc., through everything every day that he creates part of the creation at the end they use the word uh and that was uh it's to tau to that was to and to in hebrew means complete not lacking it perfect exact but when he comes to the creating man he doesn't tove he doesn't say it's tove because we're not I got a God hole inside of me that will push me to struggle into the darkness or to struggle into the light. And every single day, I get a choice. And our book talks about that. It says, it talks about being crushed in sobriety. I've been crushed many times by these self-imposed crises I can't postpone or evade. And then it says, we realize that God's either everything or he's nothing. He either is or he is. And then it says, Bob... What's your choice to be today? And you will make the choice by your actions, not by what you believe and not what you think. You'll make them by how you show up. There was a, a great member of AA back in the uh, 80s who was a pilot. And he used to say, God, this guy was just, he was amazing. He used to say the most stuff you'd never hear anywhere else. And one of the time, one time he said that AA could stand for altered attitudes, which kind of put me on the defensive because all my life people have been telling me I have a bad attitude. And then he said, but an attitude is something that us pilots talk about. It's the angle of approach. And he said, the alcoholic has had a, a skewed, selfish, self-serving, self-centered attitude or angle of approach to life. And he told a story about it was in this little plane. I don't, I'm not a pilot, so I could get some of the details wrong. But he was in this little plane, and evidently he went up above its ceiling, higher than you're supposed to go, I guess. And, and uh, he hit what I think is called a wind shear. And it's, I guess, opposing currents of air. 
and they spin you. And he goes into what is, is what he referred to as a tailspin. He said it's the most frightening thing you've ever experienced because you're spinning out of control and you, with a feeling that overcomes you that you're going to crash and die. And he said, when, when that happens, he said, your instinct is to pull back on that stuff, to try to pull that nose up. He said, but you learn that if you do that, you will surely crash that plane and die. What you must do runs completely contrary to your emotional position. You have to push that thing forward and let it bounce back on itself. And that plane was made by its creator and maker to right itself under those conditions. And I, when he said that, I thought about that so many times over the years, that the evidence in my experience that has shown up that that's the way my life is. If you, if you are like me and you go back to times when things are bad and you're surviving, you've hurt people and you've hurt yourself, if you send a CSI team in there, they're only going to find my DNA, DNA and my fingerprints. And why was that? Because I was scared and I pulled back on that throttle. I pulled back on that stick. There's a, a great line in the fear inventory, and it says that, uh, that fear, self-centered fear, will set in motion trains of circumstances which will bring guys like me horrible misfortune I feel I don't deserve. And then it says, but Bob, didn't you set the ball rolling? Later in the book, it says we made, or earlier in the book, it says we made decisions based on self, which later placed me in that position to be hurt. So Alcoholics Anonymous is trying to get me to do something I have never, never been good at, and that's to be a man and to take the responsibility. Children never take the responsibility. Adults do. Self-actualizing adults stand up. Yeah, I was wrong. I did that. If I was in your shoes, I would not, I would have, that would have hurt me. I'm sorry. What can I do to make it right? And so Alcoholics Anonymous is trying to get me to grow up, I guess, and, uh, and not be so full of myself that I'm defended and not be so full of myself that I have to justify myself and rationalize myself. And so this is all part and parcel of the suffering from a chronic illness called alcoholism that begins where the bottle ends. It's, I, I, I know there's, there's some reasonably new people here in your first year. Maybe you got here like I did with an idea that's erroneous. And the idea is, yes, in the step one, I am powerless over alcohol. Absolutely. And my life was unmanageable. Of course it was the way I drink. As if you've connected the unmanageability in your life to drinking. Here's what I found. My life is more unmanageable sober because I got nothing now to dial down my emotions. I got nothing now to put between me and the results of my actions. I got nothing to soothe my mind and my emotions. And that is really what's unmanageable. That is really what causes my suffering sober. I'm going to read a little paragraph when we come back. 
uh, after this morning, you may not want to come back. I don't. I I probably wouldn't, except I have to be here. Uh, <laughs> I I read this when I was about ten years. I was I was eleven years sober, and I just lost my first marriage. And I uh, I read this, and I, my hope my hope at that point was to find to find a woman I could be connected to, because I thought it would soothe my feelings of loneliness and and depression. I thought I think that's the missing piece here. And I read this, and I made me sick to my stomach. Maybe it'll fit you. Maybe not. It is from our twisted relations with family, friends, and society at large that many of us have suffered the most. We have been especially stupid and stubborn about them. The primary fact that we fail to recognize is our total inability to form a true partnership with another human being. Our egomania digs two disastrous pitfalls. Either we insist upon dominating the people we know for their own good, or we depend upon them far too much for my good. If we lean too heavily on people, they will sooner or later fail us, for they are human too and cannot possibly meet our incessant demands. Isn't that so true? It's like, I want you to fill my vacancies. Now, I don't say that. I don't even say it to myself. But watch the position I take, the angle of approach. My incessant demands. In this way, our insecurity grows and festers. When we habitually try to manipulate others to our own willful desires, they revolt and resist us heavily. Then we develop hurt feelings a sense of persecution, <clears throat> and a desire to retaliate. As we redouble our efforts at control, just try harder. I'll tell you something. When, every, when you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> redouble our... Oh, where, where was I? Ah! Our efforts in control and continue to fail. Our suffering becomes acute and constant. We have not once sought to be one in a family, to be a friend among friends, to be a worker among workers, to be a useful member of society. Always we tried to struggle to the top of the heap or to hide underneath it. This self-centered behavior blocked a partnership relation with any of those about us of true brotherhood, it's small comprehension. Alcoholism truly is a disease of separation. Alcoholism is painful because there's no connection and there's no unity. And I may be the guy who did that through my judgments and my opinions of others and God and my wife or whatever, but I'm the guy who's doing it. And so unity, so that my personal recovery becomes paramount on AA unity. And we're talking about more than just a member of your home group. I, I used the 12 traditions for about 12, a couple, maybe two decades to run my company. 
And it's, you know, it's amazing. You can present these principles, not as, as Alcoholics Anonymous, pre present them as principles to conduct yourself by. And normal people go, oh yeah, common welfare. Yeah, good, go oh, group conscience. Oh, this is amazing. Our purpose to help our customer. Oh yeah, this is all good. Yeah, no opinions. Great, this is amazing. Alcoholics go, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> because it threatens the control. It, it threatens, it's like, I don't want unity as much as to be, I want unity of the kingdom below me. But I don't want to be one with, I want to be one above. How many times, how many times have, have people like us gone to our sponsors or our friends about our relationships? And it all boils down to the same thing. I can't get them, I can't get her to mind, right? She won't do, she's not doing it right. And who's playing God here, right? Who's climbed up onto the throne of judgment? Who's created the separation here? I'm over here and you're over there. Who the hell did that? It was me. And so as we start to go through these traditions, uh, start to realize something uh, that they, in conjunction with the 12 steps, because the 12 steps really are a process of to uncover, discover, and discard the things that are blocking me. There is exactly what it says uh, in, in uh, we agnostics about to uncover the God within me, this, this great reality, I have to get rid of the things that are obscuring me from that. And it uses examples of three, three aspects of the ego, pomp, calamity, worship of other things, that I have to get rid of these things. And step, step three coming, the, the bridge between step three and step four refers to this again. This is referred to over and over and over again in AA literature. It says this decision in step three is a vital and crucial step. But Bob, you think you're home now, you're not. It has little permanent effect unless followed at once and maybe forever at once by a continuous effort to, to get rid of the things in ourselves that are blocking us. I don't know if you've ever felt, had those feelings, you're sober a long time and you almost gave up the hope of being a part of. You almost have had to reinforce yourself and how right you are in order to justify how separate you are. And maybe I've given up hope because I don't, I can't imagine being free of me that much that I could be with you. And that's really the deal. Self-reduction at depth. And here's the problem with that. The steps are the methodology to reduce self the traditions are the roadmap. What am I going after here? The answer to just step one, the problem is defined in two aspects, powerless over alcohol. And now, Bob, now that you're sober, you can't really manage your own life, can you? You can't rest happiness and satisfaction with this world by your very, very best efforts. It still ain't right, is it, Bob? Well, it's close. Uh, it ain't right, is it? 
In, in our book, In Vision for You, it talks about guys like me who drink again. You know, we try to puff ourselves up. You know, I love this part of the book because I, I hear people in AA, newcomers say, almost say this, they paraphrase it, but they don't even know they're paraphrasing the book. You know, that part where it says, newcomer says, oh, work better, feel better. I'm having a better time. And then it goes on to say something that's very interesting and true in my experience. As I would tell everybody how grateful I was to be sober and then drink two weeks later, it says he will presently try the old game again. Why? Because if I could be honest, and I can't, but if I could be honest, I would have to admit that I'm not really happy about my sobriety. There's something missing. I'm not really happy and I'm not really satisfied, but I roll over it with, with accomplishment, with acquisition of things that should make me happy, but they don't for very long. So I, people drink again. Or you know what's happening in today's world? This, this didn't happen back in the 70s and 80s. The medical profession backed away from us. Because they went through the 70s where I remember this is this sounds ludicrous today with the knowledge we have, but it was true. Back in the 70s, if you had alcoholism and you were newly sober, you, you they gave you a prescription for Valium. I mean, it was common. It was just it was as common as antidepressants are today. And then what happened is so many people died. So many people ended extremely addicted to these benzos that the medical profession just went, oops and backed away until the pressure from the billion, $100 billion pharmaceutical industry coupled with the medical profession who never really did buy a spiritual solution for this started get back in the game again. I watched it happen. I watched it happen. So what happens, you get a guy 20 years sober and he's just, he's, lost another relationship or another job or his life is dissatisfying to him and he gets depressed. There's a hundred doctors out there. All you have to do is say the word, I feel depressed. They're, they're reaching for their, their prescription pad. I remember I was in about 70, 77, I was in a uh, halfway house and I was depressed. Of course I was. I mean, if you looked at my life, you'd be depressed too. I mean, I was—I <laughs> should have been depressed, right? I burnt my life to the ground for God's sakes. And the and the guy who ran the place. He sent me, he got me an appointment with a psychiatrist. And I shuffle off. I feel like a leper, you know, going to the psych, sitting in the waiting room with the other lepers, you know. And I eventually go into the doctor's office, and he's sitting there and telling him about how sucky my life is. I'm in a halfway house. My parents won't have anything to do with me. They won't help me anymore. I don't have my, my last girlfriend won't even talk to me. I'm a mess. And he said, he said something to me that uh, got my attention. He said, he said, those people in that halfway house and those people you work with, they don't appreciate the sacrifice you're making, not drinking. I, th I thought, I like this guy. <laughs> and he said, there's, there's no reason for you to feel that way. I, we got this new medication that just came out this year that is designed for guys like you. And he reached, as he reached for his prescription pad, 
I started to feel better. He hadn't even given me anything yet. But he gave me hope. Because all my hope is locked into my elbow. Like as if I can <laughs> drink something, take something. And you know what happened. I got some relief from that. But I am insatiable. It's Relief is never enough relief for me. And it weared on me and I got just as felt just as bad and just as depressed on the medication he gave me after a while. It was good in the beginning. And I started to yearn for more relief. Because I'm a more kind of guy. You can't, I, I, if you're, how many people in this room have ever drank, when you're drinking and taking drugs, ever got to a point where you go, don't need any more, this is just right. I never have. I, I can't, matter of fact, I can't even imagine that. I, I, I went to a party up in, up in uh, Quincy, right outside of Boston one time, spring break. And it was a good party. We were doing shots, uh, beer bongs, smoking hashish, taking, uh, doing snorting a little bit of coke. I mean, it was a great party. I've been hitting it for about an hour or so, and a guy came through the party with a bag full of capsules, I didn't even ask him what they were. I just took a couple of them. Well, it turned out to be animal tranquilizer. Well, in about an hour, I'm laying on the floor and I can't get up, but I'm still conscious. So I'm trying to talk people into bringing me drinks, right? <laughs> True story. Because I am insatiable. And what is this? What's the driving force behind that? I think it's what Carl Jung says in the letter to Bill Wilson in the early 60s. It's a misinterpreted thirst. It looks like a thirst for alcohol or drugs or any of that star sex or whatever, but it's not. And the reason you know that because you get it and it ain't enough. It's not enough. It, Jung says he thinks it's a, a yearning of my being for unity or maybe a union with God. So I'm looking everywhere else for the solution to fill my holes. And it's always there. Every meeting I go to, they talk about it. But it can't possibly be my answer. Let's take a break. We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you are interested in other speaker tapes or CDs from AA or Al-Anon, please contact us at Sound Solutions, toll free 1-877-893-2777 or visit us on the web at soundsolutionsrecording.com. We are also available to cover your recording and sound system needs. Thank you for allowing us to be of service and carrying the message.